This is not the media. This is hell. Today on This is Hell, for centuries, imperial projects from the global north have been devastating to the rest of the planet's peoples. Repression, oppression, subjugation, colonialism have cost countless lives, destroyed entire civilizations, have led to the destructiveness of climate change and genocide. Imperialism's legacy is just about everything that is wrong with the world today and what's wrong with the planet's history. From its racial, from imperialism's racialization that has created an inhumane caste system, to its imperial militaries that have conducted massacre after massacre, to its police that enforce imperialism's uh, role and power back home on the streets of the empire, it seems you can trace all of society's problems back to imperialism. And now imperialism is coming home to haunt those who terrified the planet. With its presence, we'll talk imperialism in a few when we speak with independent researcher and writer Connor Woodman, who posted the five-part series at Verso Books' website, The Imperial Boomerang. You can find that series at versobooks.com. Connor is author of the Spy Cops in Context papers, which you can find at crimeandjustice.org.uk. And of course, we'll wrap up the week as we do most weeks with the moment of truth from contributor Jeff Dorchin. This week, Jeff wonders if we can pretend our way to justice, and I hope we can because I think that's the only way we're going to get there. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Alex, any plans for the weekend? Uh, not getting in trouble online. <laughs> you're not going to what? I'm not getting in trouble online. Oh, that is, uh, my, that's my plan for the weekend is not saying anything, not getting in trouble. Why have you gotten in trouble online recently? Not yet. I keep deleting things before anyone reads them. <laughs> that's a good way to not get in trouble online. This week's question from hell is, what has Joe Biden been up to this whole time? What has Joe Biden been up to this whole time? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins a This Is Hell medical face mask. Get your This Is Hell face mask today by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Or be the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell, which is, again... What has Joe Biden been up to this whole time? You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email it to either of us, chuck at thisishell.com, alex at thisishell.com, but we must have your answer by the end of today's show when we will be announcing this week's winner. Alex, how have listeners answered the question from hell since yesterday's show? Uh, what has Joe Biden been up to lately? What has Joe Biden been up to lately? William C. says, finding Waldo. Dan O. says, groping. <laughs> Gross. And Justin M. says, just hanging out under America's bleachers. <laughs> Is he smoking pot or making out? I'm not too sure what he's doing down he there. He might just be lost under there. Maybe he's working on a, his own little Manhattan project. Don't people work on those under bleachers, too? Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell following our guest. Again, email us your answer, Facebook them to us, or post them on our Facebook page, message them to us via Twitter. We'll be announcing this week's winner at the end of today's show following Jeff Dorch of the Moment of Truth. So get your answers in now. You are listening to God's Favorite Radio Show. Prove me wrong. This is hell. And that's why I know nobody involved with This Is Hell will get coronavirus, because this is God's favorite radio show, live stream, or podcast, and God does not want to miss one single episode. So we're good. 
God's still pissed that I missed a few shows this year with diverticulitis, although being an all-knowing and all-seeing God, you'd think God would have had a heads-up on my stomach ailments and actually done something about it before they actually occurred. I guess God works in mysterious ways, right? A lot like Florida, which keeps being the cliché that is just so annoying. You don't know why Florida does the things it does, much like God. You have no idea what its motivations are. The logic behind Florida's thinking is confusingly contradictory. And the righteousness it employs in their decision-making is, frankly, a bit too preachy for such a questionable history of success. Which has a lot of parallels with God. And Florida was apparently at it again Tuesday night at a meeting of the county commissioners of Palm Beach County, Florida, prior to a vote by the commissioners that would make wearing a mask in public mandatory. I don't know what they really mean by mandatory. I don't know if you'd get arrested or get a fine. All I know is the vote was on it being mandatory. So, of course, this led to a series of complaints and conspiracy theories that were just so Florida. One commenter believed it was an offense to freedom of choice. Wearing a mask was an offense to their freedom of choice, which they implied was somehow a guaranteed freedom within the U.S. Constitution and not simply the best album ever by Devo. That speaker went on to say to the commissioners who unanimously voted for the mask measure after the complaints were registered, quote, every single one of you that's obeying the devil's laws are going to be arrested. You're going to be arrested for crimes against humanity. In Florida, wearing a mask to protect people from getting a virus that has already killed nearly 125,000 in the U.S. and half a million worldwide is not merely a crime against humanity. Somehow, that's the devil's law. Now, I don't know where you find the devil's law, which reference library you can find it in, if it's written down anywhere, but this person seems to have access to it, and I just wish they'd share so we can peruse their documentation. They continued, every single one of you has a smirk behind that little mask, but every single one of you are going to be punished by God. You cannot escape God, not even with the mask or six feet. Uh, what is it, like two masks and seven feet? So it's theocracy they want, not democracy. Cool, but that's very un-American for a person who's wearing a shirt with an American flag on it. Not that they know how the U.S. is supposed to function. Remember, they do think that freedom of choice is guaranteed in the Constitution. Another angry citizen invented, I want to know who is getting paid off and where is the mandate coming from. The accusation of mandatory mask wearing being motivated by bribery is a new one to me, but it's not surprising. Conspiracy theories are based on perceived motivations, mere speculation and nothing more. So yeah, they always fall back on a secret conspiracy of bribery at some point. The angry citizen continued, well, guess what? The riots are spreading too, and what the hell are we going to do about that? We're going to arrest patriots for not wearing a mask? That's what you want? And I say Trump 2020. <laughs> so it's riots versus patriots in Florida's simplistic binary worldview of good guys and bad guys, which has a logic that is as deep as any of those old Western movies that your grandfather falls asleep, falls asleep to, while mumbling something that you're pretty certain was really racist. Yet another upset resident said, you probably already have your orders already taken care of. You don't really care. You could have at least faked it. You do not care about we the people. It's pathetic. 
It breaks my heart because I would die for that flag. I would die for this country and I would die for the Constitution. It's weird. It seems like the only three words that this person had read of the Constitution was, were uh, we the people, and they stopped because they were bored. Exactly how wearing a mask is unconstitutional again was not explained. It just is unconstitutional. It's the kind of weaponization of the Constitution that you often hear with the Bible. Why are you for or against something? Because it's in the Bible. Where in the Bible? Which is when the conversation usually peters out. Is Constitution, they were using the Constitution as cudgel, not as an expression of democracy. Yet another upset Floridian took to the mic to tell the county commissioners, you're not God, you're removing our freedoms and stomping on our constitutional rights by these communist dictatorship orders. Which is weird because the implication is that only God can take away our freedoms and stomp on our constitutional rights. So I am getting very afraid of whatever God these freaks are following because their God sounds like a dick. They concluded, if you do vote to mandate masks in the workplace and public schools and stores, the death of many will be on your hands. As we know, masks will be keeping us from getting the virus and therefore dying. I think the commenter has implied that people will be killed, will be murdered for wearing masks. And I don't think it was implied, but more frankly stated. With people who have no idea what is in the Constitution, defending imaginary rights and promoting theocracy while threatening anyone who wears a mask with physical harm, even death, Florida is proving once again. This is hell. Coming up on This is Hell, after centuries of imposing imperialism around the world, in the words of today's guest, the chickens have come home to roost. During the moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin will be wondering if we can pretend our way to justice. We'll have more of your answers to this week's question mail, as well as announcing this week's winner. And we'll be telling you what's happening on tomorrow's Patreon podcast exclusively for subscribers at patreon.com slash this is hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live stream, and podcast host Chuck Mertz, producing is Alex Jerry, live from late capitalism, where the only thing that is not privately owned is our own privacy. This is hell for centuries. Imperialism imposed its colonial rule all over the world, subjugating huge populations to their will and slaughtering them if they did not comply. But as those empires fell and their former subjects gained independence, many of them returned to the imperial nation itself, challenging the very concept of imperialism at its heart. Here to help us understand the failed uh, the fallout from 400, if not more, years of imperialism and what it means for the former empire's independent researcher, writer Connor Woodman, who posted the five-part series at Verso Books' website, The Imperial Boomerang, which you can find at versobooks.com. Welcome to This Is Hell, Connor. Hi, Chuck. How you doing? Good. You start the series by writing imperialism is often conceived of as something that is done to an other Dominant states over the past 500 years, overwhelmingly the European and North American states, impose military, political, and cultural domination over disempowered foreign populations. Those foreign populations in this conception are the parties which suffer the enduring negative effects of imperialism. Imperialism is something which happens over there in the colonies. The domestic polities of imperial nations are of little political or analytical interest. 
when examining colonial history and practice. To you, what explains why we do not recognize what you call the imperial boomerang effect, the effect where, as you describe it, a specific mechanism by which imperialism has profoundly molded the political and social structure of the countless uh, countries carrying it out, the imperial boomerang effect. To what extent uh, do we recognize that boomerang effect that our imperialism overseas causes problems back at home? I don't think we recognize it much at all. Um, And I guess there's a question of who we mean by we, um, there's the kind of mainstream um, representations, the mainstream understandings of history that you receive in schooling, in the media, um, in your museums. Um, and certainly there's, I mean, not only is there little understanding of the imperial boomerang effect, at least in this country, there's very little understanding of, and I'm, I'm from the UK here, um, there's very little understanding of um, the history of imperialism generally. Um, actually, it's it's quite massively kind of obfuscated, um, ignored, um, and when it is discussed, it's um, discussed in terms that are kind of widely divergent from um, the actual reality of the history. Um, the reason the, the audience I was addressing more in the piece is kind of the broadly defined the left, the kind of progressive, more um, socialist inclined um, sections of Western populations, um, where you know a lot of writing on imperialism where. The history of imperialism is taken much more seriously, but a lot of writing on it um, tends to perceive imperialism as something that is kind of uh, starting at the center of the empire and then emanating outwards towards the colonies. Um, And there's kind of subjugated populations who suffer the effect of imperialism um, in the colonies, but um, there's not much of a a two way um, sort of process. There's not much rebounding um, of the effects back into the imperial heartland. Um, and I wanted to kind of address that and, and point out, once you pointed it out, it seems quite obvious that, of course, um, for countries that have practiced imperialism for hundreds of years um, and have you know, vastly shaped the nature of um, huge swathes of the planet, um, of course, it couldn't not have an effect on on the very um, identity, on the very practices and institutions of those countries themselves. Um, why we don't tend to think about that, um, I mean, it, it's difficult to say precisely what the psychological or political mechanisms are that are resulting in that, but it's probably part of a general kind of um, racist kind of orientation legacy um, in the West where we, when we center the fact that we have done things to other people and we have been the cause of political changes overseas, um, we don't necessarily like to think of the fact that we might have been the receptors of um, of those effects as well, and that there might have been a two-way process, and that actually the activities of the colonized as well um, can also have effects on on the domestic um, uh, kind of countries. Um, so we don't like to think that maybe our culture, maybe our institutions um, come to some extent uh, to be the way they are precisely because of the activities of people in the global south and their resistance to us and the kind of two-way interaction between the colonized and the colonized. Um, we we like to think of ourselves as sort of self-contained nations that have our own national history and contiguous kind of national boundaries. Um, and that's our, the kind of mythology that's developed um, around kind of national histories. Um, we don't like to think that actually it's a lot more complicated, it's a lot more messy um, and non-white peoples, um, and their resistance and their response to our impositions um, has had a major role in, in our own histories. I've never really understood the disconnect between uh, this idea of being an imp- 
empire and this idea of actually committing to imperialism if let me let me explain one of the things that i it's just always kind of freaked me out is that here in the united states nobody ever wants the united states to be called an empire to be said that it is acting in any kind of imperial way it doesn't seem to me at least that the british empire seems to have that kind of concern over being called an empire to you what explains the shame of imperialism that we have here in the United States, yet the willingness to impose that imperialism all over the world. Well, it's a curious feature of the U.S., and I think it it sort of is a product of uh, partly the nature of the historical period in which the U.S. empire developed, and partly a product of um, the kind of nature of the justification of the United States as a country, which has always been um, bound up with an alleged kind of anti-colonialism, whether it was uh, in the initial rebellion against the British Empire that they kind of took up the mantle of anti-imperialism um, to kind of, you know, f- free the United States from um, British imperial influence, um, which, of course, wasn't really an anti-imperialist um, effort, wasn't really an, a genuinely anti-imperialist revolution. It was an attempt by one section of the kind of white settler class to create a new separate empire um, that would span from, you know, eventually from sea to shining sea. Um, so, yeah, and the way that the US kind of uh, tried to fight the Cold War during the 20th century was by positioning itself as a new kind of power, Woodrow Wilson, uh, promoting the ideas of self-determination, um, kind of different from the old European colonial powers, Um, So there was an element of kind of the justification for what the U.S. did and what gave it legitimacy that was always bound up ideologically with this idea of anti-imperialism, anti-colonialism, which, of course, um, it wasn't. Um, That was just basically just an ideological sheen for a new form of imperialism. Um, The other factor is that uh, in the 20th century, particularly, imperialism and colonialism have been massively delegitimized um, through the process of decolonization of massive struggles that have been waged by millions and millions of people in the global south um, from Algeria to Kenya to Vietnam um, and you know successfully delegitimized the notion and to some extent the practice of imperialism um, across the world so it's no longer acceptable to call yourself an empire um, even if you are in fact an empire which the US is and the US you know, it's much more of an informal empire. You generally don't go and place your flag um, on a country and say this is now U.S. territory. Um, I mean, there is a bit of that in Guantanamo Bay and, and elsewhere. Um, but generally, um, the forms of uh, colonization that are undertaken by the U.S. are much more informal. They're about economic domination. They're about um, sort of military bases. They're about the control of international institutions. So it's easier to deny that um, that it's an empire, even though under any reasonable definition, um, the vast expanse of U.S. power around the world, militarily, economically, culturally, um, couldn't be described as anything other than an empire of some form. And that's this neo-imperialism. What explains why it seems to be so invisible and not just to the citizenry who it's supposed to obfuscate that kind of imperialism, but what what explains why it's so invisible to those within the media who are not reporting on this as an imperial process? Well, um, the media is very bound up in in maintaining the power structures. Um, you know, uh, there are various mechanisms that operate within the media to keep 
um, kind of uh, unhelpful opinions and perspectives um, from reaching the mass of the population, whether it's the sort of uh, the class from which journalists um, are selected, the nature of their political opinions, the kind of um, who gets promoted, um, who gets uh, selected to report certain things. Um, there's these kind of ideational factors um, operating at the individual journalists. Um, and there's kind of, you know, subtle uh, ways in which the kind of dependency of um, newspapers on their proprietors, for example, um, as particularly in this country. I mean, we have um, huge billionaires um, who own uh, the newspapers, various newspapers, and um, use the newspapers as their own sort of um, political propaganda sheet. I mean, Rupert Murdoch is the is the classic example. There was not a single newspaper around the world um, owned by Rupert Murdoch that didn't support the Iraq War, for example. And it's very obvious that there's a strong reason for 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 why that is. Um, uh, but more broadly, um, you know, why don't we um, uh, sort of know about what happened? I mean, to give you some examples of of concretely the processes in in this country of kind of erasing history and erasing the reality of um, the British Empire. When the British Empire was collapsing in the 50s, 60s, 70s, um, there was a kind of directive that was given across the whole of the empire called Operation Legacy, um, whereby colonial administrators, as they pulled out of the British colonies, were instructed to take any uh, documents that might be sensitive um, and either to burn them or to throw them into current free waters, that was the exact order, um, or to uh, sort of um, ferry them back to the UK where they would be hidden away in secret archives. And we're talking millions and millions and millions of documents here. Um, it's an entire kind of record of, of what happened in the dying days of the British Empire, which they didn't want newly independent governments um, to get their hands on and then expose. Um, and the documents contain information about um, sort of concentration camps in Kenya in the 50s, um, about sort of the war in Malaya against the, the communists there, um, various kind of um, incredibly abusive methods that the British Empire was using to try and maintain control of its empire. Um, and these documents were all destroyed or, or hidden away for a long, long time time. And it was only until the 2010s, um, due to the work of some of the um, Kenyan Mau Mau's who had been tortured by the British at the end of the empire, and some um, historians here in the UK, who managed to basically expose what happened and the whole um, lie kind of unraveled from there. Um, so there's, you know, very concretely, there are massive um, processes of destroying history um, and destroying the history of the empire. And it's not surprising that then people don't um, know about what's happened. We are speaking with Connor Woodman. He wrote the five-part series at Verso Books' website called The Imperial Boomerang. You can find that series at versobooks.com. And within the writing, uh, Connor quotes a whole bunch of past guests on our show, Robert Poland, Naomi Klein, Liz Fiquette, Alfred McCoy. So all of our listeners who have been listening for a while, you, a lot of our past guests are quoted in this, and I think that you'll really enjoy his writing because of that. And you can find all those interviews at our website, thisishell.com. You write that the term imperial boomerang and associated political theorizing first emerged as scholars and activist intellectuals attempted to grapple with the historical experience of the Holocaust following World War II. How, some were asking, could one of the world centers of artistic, scientific, and political innovation, Weimar Germany, succumb to one of the most all-encompassing acts of genocide ever witnessed, some in a still popular explanation sought to exceptionalize Hitler and Nazi Germany, the Holocaust was a freak occurrence, a deviation from traditions of European entitlement, or enlightenment, uh, humanism, and 
Democracy, a mass psychosis of the German nation, perhaps. For others, the rise of the Nazi party was explicable by reference to a series of unfortunate historical contingencies. The Treaty of Versailles, the Great Depression, the failure of the progressive German opposition. If imperialism can lead to fascism, and often does, what role does imperialism then play today in what we see is the rise of the far right, not only in the U.S., U.K., and Europe, but elsewhere in places like Brazil and the Philippines as well? What role does imperialism play in the rise of the far right? I think imperialism has a massive role because um, kind of imperialism and, and racism basically go hand in hand. In order for um, Western countries to legitimate to um, kind of accept with a good conscience um, what they do to the global south. Uh, they have developed a huge structure of, of kind of racism, which is, you know, obviously assigning um, swathes of um, humanity uh, a kind of lower status based on um, supposed physical or mental characteristics. Um, so uh, that basically imperialism carries on today in forms of neo-imperialism. There's huge, vast international inequality between West, uh, between the West and the rest of the world. Um, Western countries, Western um, economic um, institutions continue to dominate the global south um, and the level of exploitation internationally um, is vast. You only have to look in a, you know, a Chinese sweatshop or a Bangladeshi sweatshop owned by a Western corporation or maybe a subcontractor that is working for a Western co corporation um, funneling back the value um, into the West um, to kind of see the, the reality um, that still exists or to look at the IMF or the World Bank or um, certain parts of the UN that are completely dominated by um, Western economic agendas and, and economic interests um, or to look, as we already mentioned, at the vast kind of unilateral US um, empire around the world with the military bases um, and the kind of cultural domination of, of countries. Um, so imperialism still exists. It didn't disappear when um, the flags of the European countries were lowered. Um, it was reinvented, as Kwame Nkrumah put it in his famous book, as neo-imperialism. Um, so it follows from that that in order to justify that, racism has to be reproduced within the countries of the West itself. Um, and of course it does. And it takes particular forms at different times and different places. In this country, in the UK, um, we have kind of had a long period of um, semi-reckoning or coming to terms with um, the collapse of our formal empire um, and failing to come to terms with the fact that um, we haven't completely dismantled all of those structures of imperialism, that we perpetuate them and that we ride on the coattails of US imperialism in various ways. Um, and that process of reconstituting kind of British identity after the empire has been very, very imbricated with um, uh, notions of racism that were developed in, in um, uh, under the empire. So um, we see the rise of the far right in this country domestically um, kind of in its uh, contemporary forms um, is very much linked to the end of the empire and uh, the end of the formal empire, the continuation of international inequality and the migration of populations from our former colonies um, in South Asia or the Caribbean or wherever um, into our country. Um, and in response to that, you know, we'd, we'd spent centuries kind of um, occupying those places and sending our white citizens to, to these places. And now when some of their descendants then want to come back to the UK, well, all of a sudden we want to redefine the UK as a contiguous national um, and sort of more or less white country. Um, and there are certain currents in our society which have responded in that way and have been stoked up by um, elements of the establishment in, in the Conservative Party and elsewhere. Um, and I think that that 
you know, that generally that process of continued international inequality, continued um, exploitation and imperialism internationally by Western states against the rest of the world, the global migration that results from that, from um, wars and poverty and um, increasingly environmental degra degradation, um, means that um, there are elements that are lying around ready to be taken advantage of by far right movements um, in the US or in the UK. Um, and, you know, very scarily, Liz Fichetti, um has a, a book um, out a couple of years ago analysing this in, in Europe in great detail. And the rise of the far right movements um, is really worrying. And it's but it's not just far right movements. It's um, as she points out, the mainstream in Europe um, and increasingly in the US as well has been pushed towards the right and has been pushed towards absorbing more and more of the ideas and practices of, of, of what was considered um, kind of fringe fascist ideas and particularly around border policing. Um, and I think we're going to see an in intensification of this unless we are able to produce a mass movement which can confront both the continuing practices of neo-imperialism and its concomitant um, manifestations of racism domestically um, as a kind of joined up um, internationalist movement. And there's notions of race. There's notions of racism, as you point out in your writing. There are also, within imperialism, notions of racialization. And I want to make sure people understand this aspect of imperialism. You write that British intelligence and police surveillance helped constitute the downward racialization of the Irish, who were not considered fully white at the time. Racialization was a necessary appendage to colonial rule, one that was imported back into England, along with the institutional practices of political policing, imported back from the uh, colonialism. The colonial gaze was being turned inwards towards suspect migrant communities at home, process which continues today with the intense surveillance and harassment of Muslim communities in Europe and the United States. Connor, how can the Irish not be white? What does that say about the racialization of imperialism? So it's important to understand what racism and what race is so race is not something that we you know that scientists can go out and find amongst the human population um, it doesn't have any kind of biological basis it's so, it's a social system of power that is attached to um, physical characteristics of um, individuals or alleged physical or mental characteristics and it's constantly shifting so who's considered black and white who's considered brown who's considered slightly white or not quite white enough um, changes you know, in time and place. Um, some people who here in the UK will be considered black because um, they're mixed race. When they go to the Caribbean, for example, they might be considered white because there's a different system of racialization there. Um, so what I'm trying to trying to get at in that series is um, that we have to kind of look at how this constantly shifting system of power, um, what we call race and racism, um, is connected to imperialism. Um, and it's a very effective method of um, controlling populations and of basically buying off um, the West, the Western um, working class. I mean, if you look at the emergence of the idea of race um, in the Caribbean um, and in North um, America, for example, um, it was very much bound up with slavery. But early early slave plantations um, weren't exclusively populated by um, African um, enslaved persons. There were also um, sort of indentured laborers from Europe, kind of lower class, what we would now call white people um, who were working alongside in also in pretty terrible conditions um, on the plantations um, there. Now, race was kind of developed as a way of um, kind of dividing those two populations. So any kind of um, common interests between those indentured um, European laborers and the kind of African slaves um, was kind of broken up by saying to 
um, the European workers, well, you're white, so you have something in, in common with the white people, um, the white planters and the ruling class of those Caribbean societies. You don't want to make common cause with the um, African um, and so-called black people um, that we've enslaved because they're fundamentally different from you. They're fundamentally less um, human than you. Um, and this, this technique, this move by the white ruling class um, to basically kind of build a, a, a racial and cross-class coalition to kind of forestall the possibility of a um, cross-racial class coalition um, was something that was then brought back and used domestically. Um, so this um, term white privilege that we that we could use quite a lot now um, in progressive circles, this was originally a way of describing how um, domestically, um, say in the United States, the ruling class here in the United States or there in the United States where you are, um, would be able to basically buy off the white working class by giving them the crumbs from the table of exploitation and say, don't um, combine in unions with your black workers, exclude black workers from the unions. Um, we'll have a sort of joint white exploitation of black people um, and you'll kind of get the psychological benefits of this um, idea of whiteness um, that you can ascribe to as an identity. Um, and in return, um, we'll kind of treat you a little bit better than than we would otherwise, and definitely better than we're going to treat these black people. Um, when in actual fact, it would, it's much more in the interests of those white workers that they combine um, on their class interests with um, other black and brown people and fight against their true exploiters who are the ruling class. Um, so this is kind of what what we mean by those practices of racialization and how they're connected to the history of imperialism and colonialism. So how much then uh, do, does colonialists, uh, does their whiteness define, do they define themselves by what they are not and what they are not is the colonized? Because I would think that that would not be very sustainable to be defining you, yourself, defining your whiteness, whatever that is, by a negative, by something that you are not. Is that sustainable? Are there serious drawbacks of defining yourselves by what you are not? Well, there certainly is. I mean, if, if we buy into the idea of basic human equality, um, which most people would at least say on paper that they do agree with, um, we don't want to be basing it on any kind of system of exclusion. And once you exclude people from um, what counts as human, um, that's when extreme degrees of violence and um, exploitation begin to be allowed and, and begin to be legitimized. Um, and I mean, I think when we look at um, you know, Western countries, we look at, look, take the UK, for example, where I live, um, the kind of investment that the white population has in their identity as white people, um, and the way that it is, as you say, defined against another, um, whether it's against kind of um, you know, Pakistani migrants or against um, various forms of Muslim migrants, as it often is now, um, or whether it's against Polish and Eastern European migrants, as it is increasingly, who are, who are not really, again, this is where racialization comes in, they're not considered fully white, although their skin color is pretty much the same um, as British people's, they're not really fully included in the category of what's white, they're kind of not quite white enough. Um, but if you look at the kind of uh, the politics and the mental state and the kind of um, level of happiness in this country, um, it's it's not there. We're a very, very kind of sad, angry country. And as we've seen with Brexit, um, with the election recently of, of um, Boris Johnson um, and over and over again with our political and social crises, um, we're a deeply um, kind of we're suffering from a major affliction. And the racism and the dehumanization that we practice against 
um, other people doesn't make us happy and it doesn't give us a good sense of affirmative um, uh, identity. It doesn't make us liberated um, because, you know, it's it's a bit of a cliche, but it's true to say that when you bully or oppress someone else, um, you're harming yourself um, as much as you are the other person. Um, you know, you're not quite harming yourself as much, but certainly there is an element of degradating, you know, degrading yourself, of harming yourself um, through degrading your fellow human. Um, and I think we see that in over and over again in, in European countries. And you look at far right, or you speak to far right um, activists or people who are leaning towards far right views, um, white people in this country and elsewhere, um, they're not happy people most of the time. They're pretty, you know, pretty miserable and they're suffering. A lot of the time they're suffering from all sorts of forms of exploitation in their own life, which they're then directing um, kind of violently outwards against um, people who are even lower than they are. Um, so, yeah, I think we, we need to overcome this for our own sake as much as for anyone else's. You also mentioned that neoliberalism has influenced everything in the West, from rising inequality to declining life prospects, our deepest conceptualization of the world to our ways of relating to one another. It is all part of a product of the neo-imperial boomerang effect. And you point out how this first took place under Salvador Allende, or after the falling of Salvador Allende and in Chile in the 1970s. This was the thing that many people referred to as the Chilean miracle, which did seem to work for a very short period of time when you look at the economic and financial metrics of Chile, but would later quickly become a disaster. And because of that misleading success, it was sold back here in the States. And now we have the colonial project of neoliberalism here in the U.S. How do we better understand neoliberalism when we understand it as a colonial or imperial project? Well, I think we we understand anything by understanding its its history and and where it emerged, um, and it certainly again gives the impetus strategically. And I think this, you know, what I'm trying to get at, and what I do in the last piece um, in the series of the five articles, is to try and uh, point out some strategic lessons because I think. Um, where some political writing go wrong is where they, they only offer an analysis or a kind of diagnosis of a problem without connecting that analysis to um, how a, a movement might kind of operate um, to confront it. Um, and I think, again, to, to come back to this country, but I think it's similar and definitely similar in the US, um, understandings of neoliberalism amongst the progressive movement have, again, been very much focused on the domestic sphere. Um, and there's certainly a huge I mean, there's a huge amount that needs to be attended to in terms of its um, origins in the domestic sphere and the way that um, domestic ruling classes were using neoliberalism and deploying it against, say, for example, the miners um, here, um, the kind of most militant section of the working class here in the UK. Um, but um, neoliberalism is a global phenomena and um, part of the um, impacts of neoliberalism um, have kind of been tested in the global south, um, for example, in Chile, and then through the IMF structural adjustment programs across Africa and much of the rest of the world, um, and then kind of deployed back into Europe. And we saw this um, in the early 2010s with Greece, for example, when there was the Eurozone crisis, um, and Greece was um, kind of under all of this odious debt that had been um, imposed upon it by uh, Western European uh, financial creditors. Um, and the IMF and the European Union and Germany were um, trying to force Greece to pay these debts, even though Greece was completely bankrupt. Um, and they swooped in and did exactly the same to Greece as what they've been doing for a couple of decades in the global south to African countries to Southeast Asian countries by saying, we will only bail you out if you agree to basically surrender all of your 
democratic rights, all of your political sovereignty and allow us to determine your economic policy and push it in a neoliberal direction. And the results in, in Greece have been horrifying in terms of um, social deprivation, homelessness, poverty, etc. Um, so there's a, an example of how um, when something starts out in the global south, it very soon migrates back. Um, and as a movement, we have to be attendant to that and we have to be on the lookout to basically showing solidarity with people in the global south and to working with movements in the global south as soon as these things start to get imposed because it's very easy for us to say okay well this mass surveillance technology um, this method of repression this new economic system is only being imposed on people far away um, we're just kind of you know it's bad but we won't really do anything about it and we won't really try to fight it um, tooth and nail because it's not really impacting us. Um, but just from a self-interested point of view, aside from the obvious moral um, issues with that, just from a self-interested point of view, um, it's it's foolish strategically because those things are going to be imposed back on you. Um, and as exactly what happened with neoliberalism, with the, the coup in Chile um, and the kind of, you know, Chicago economic boys going and testing out all their theories there um, and then it being brought right back um, to the US and UK with with Reagan and Thatcher, um, so it's it's an appeal on my part to basically uh, for for a more internationalist movement to be reborn and for the left to be constantly trying to make connections with um, movements in the global south. There are dozens of incredible movements in the global south fighting these kind of things right on the front lines, um, and uh, you know we all have much to gain by collaboration across those national lines. And I want to give, uh, have you give a quick example of what the threat, the real threat is and what the outcome can be. You were touching a little bit earlier on the miners' strikes of the 1980s. You write, the legacy and continuation of colonialism offered the British ruling class a potent repertoire of tactics for its counter-subversion strategies at home. The British working class suffered a defeat in the miners' strike of the 1980s from which it has failed to recover. The imperial boomerang had a key and hidden role in the decapitation of that movement. This is the ability for imperialism to quash dissent. How did the police change Britain through the repression of the miners' strikes? How might Britain be different today if that repression had not occurred? Well, counterfactuals are obviously incredibly uh, difficult to say with any precision, but um, the miners' strike was a massively significant event, not just for Britain, but um, internationally. I mean, the miners were, um, and the National Union of Mine Workers was, one of the most militant um, workers unions uh, in all of Europe. Um, and actually in the early 70s, they were so powerful, they managed to bring down a conservative government um, and to bring in a new a new labor regime. Um, and they were kind of the backbone of, of working class organization um, to a large extent, um, the kind of, you know, uh, they were a kind of bastion of, of support for the Labour Party and for progressive kind of um, social development in this country in general. Um, and their defeat um, in the mid-1980s at the hands of Thatcher, which was a huge and vicious struggle, a real kind of old school class struggle um, where, you know, both sides were fully aware of um, the kind of uh, death um, grip that they had on each other and, um, and were kind of a, a total fight to political death, um, which sadly the miners lost um, eventually after you know, a long, long, hard strike. Um, the result of that was was kind of the linchpin of a complete disintegration of working class organization and union organization in this country. And similar things happen in the US, which you'll be more familiar with. Um, 
but um, it was kind of the the real death knell for union organizing to a large extent in this country, which it's never went completely and it still exists. And in fact, we're starting to rebuild it a little bit here. Um, but we've never recovered to the level of industrial activity, to the level of self-organization um, that we had. And we've seen the, the ultimate results of that in the election um, in December, which pitted a um, a kind of socialist inclined um, uh, Labour Party, one of the first kind of genuine socialist um, Labour Party leaderships that we've had, a kind of mass movement of hundreds of thousands of members of the Labour Party against a elitist, um, eaten educated um, Toff, who was a kind of racist, a, a buffoon, a liar, um, a manipulator in Boris Johnson. Um, and, you know, to, to everyone's horror, and to a lot of people's horror, um, there were communities, ex-mining communities in the north that voted for or at least didn't turn out for the Labour Party. And some of them voted for um, Boris Johnson's Conservative Party, which is the exact same Conservative Party which had destroyed these communities. Um, and you look at kind of the, the state of some of the communities in the north that used to be based around the mining industries, the rates of, of suicide, of murder, of um, kind of general social misery has gone up massively because they were completely abandoned. Their entire identity and economic life was completely destroyed um, by Thatcher. And the product of that and the failure of the left to do anything about it um, has been that they uh, have been turned into a, a, a weapon against um, the kind of socialist Labour Party now. Um, so the, the implications are huge um, and are still being worked out. And it's an absolutely vital strategic question for the left in this country is how we reverse some of that. Um, and there are lots of discussions happening about that um, on the left at the moment that, that I won't go into. But it's a huge, you know, the, the miners strike was a huge blow for any kind of hope for um, moving towards a more just and equal society. And that they were the kind of linchpin of the resistance against Thatcher and neoliberalism that was that was brutally crushed. So uh, we've also seen in the last few decades the increased militarization of the police. What does that militarization of the police reveal to you about the state of imperialism? Does that tell you that the state of imperialism is as far more strong and solid or that it is far more precarious? It's extremely difficult to say um, because sometimes uh, systems of oppression and, and systems of rule seem strongest just before the fall um, and sometimes they are genuinely um, extremely uh, strong and resilient. My, my inclination is to think that we're passing into a phase of um, real crisis for imperialism and for capitalism in general um, and that the kind of increased brutal policing methods, which we're obviously seeing horrifyingly in the United States at the moment, and to a lesser extent, but still dramatic here in the United Kingdom. Um, these expressions of, of brutal um, kind of policing and violence against any kind of resistance is uh, a reflection, a symptom of a system in, in decline and a system that doesn't have an ability to address its flaws and to address the needs of an increasingly vast section of its population. And when you can't um, sort of maintain social stability by increasing people's uh, well-being or through providing, you know, uh, home ownership or rising living standards or whatever it is. When you can't do that, the other option is to crack down with brutal violence. Um, and I think that's what we're seeing increasingly now, um, which 
it's, it's horrifying, but it also means that there are opportunities for the left, if it gets its act together, to um, take advantage of those crises and, you know, do what the neoliberals did to some extent, which is take seize advantage of the crisis in order to impose a new um, social and political settlement. Um, but this time in the interests of the majority of the population, not in the interests of um, a tiny slither of, um, of finance and um, uh, capital and um, the ruling class. If I'm splitting hairs here, please feel free to correct me. You focus on it should be an anti-imperialist reaction from the left. There are those who believe that the protests that we are seeing around the world right now are, are should be focused on anti-racism or should be focused on anti-fascism or should be focused on anti-capitalism or that these protests should be about... Uh, opposition to white supremacy and white privilege. Why do you see this as it should be a campaign against imperialism? Do all those things fall under imperialism? No, I think it should be an anti-racist and anti-imperialist um, movement. And I think the fact that we tend to see um, those two things as somewhat distinct is a product of a kind of um, a breakdown of uh, intellectual work on the left to some extent, which I'm trying to address um, or make a small contribution to to redressing in these um, in this series on Verso, um, you know, to the to the Black Panther Party, to the kind of uh, Black Power movement in the U.S. in the late '60s, early '70s, um, the idea of anti-racism and anti-imperialism were completely bound up together, um, and in, including other parts of the left beyond that, um, they saw the interconnections and they saw how in order to be anti-racist. Um, you have to be anti-imperialist as well, because there's a connection, as we spoke, discussed earlier in the show, there's a connection between um, the racism at home and the dehumanization and brutalization of people overseas through processes of imperialism. Um, so you have to see the interconnections between them. Trying to fight one of them without the other um, is, I think, destined to fail, um, because if you're trying to address racism, it's more like firefighting. You're not getting to the one of the root causes of um, why racism develops. You might make some progress against it in the short term, but the long kind of structural pressures that um, that show up in the form of domestic racism won't be addressed until we start to address the international inequalities and address the fact that we are, or our governments and our ruling classes are brutalizing people overseas. Um, so I think, you know, my, my plea is for um, people to try and combine their analyses of these things and not to see them as distinct or separate um, or as irrelevant to each other, but um, to know that this is a, a system with all kinds of complex interconnections and the ruling class understands these interconnections quite well and their proposals usually are quite pretty joined up in terms of the different um, sectors of the social system that work together um, in order to maintain its smooth functioning. We have to be just as smart strategically about seeing the various interconnections um, between different parts of the system and their various weaknesses and contradictions and um, exploiting them successfully. We have been speaking with independent researcher, writer Connor Woodman, who posted the five-part series at Verso Books' website, The Imperial Boomerang. You can find that series at versobooks.com. Connor is also author of the Spy Cops in Context papers, which you can find at crimeandjustice.org.uk. Connor, what we do as our final question for each and every one of our guests 
is we ask what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. Our question from hell for you is, you write that the background conditions which provide the fertile ground for neo-fascist organizing, organizing which, as you cite another past guest on our show, Liz Fichetti, has warned neo-fascist organizing is expanding at a terrifying rate across Europe, are to be found in the racism and imperialism embedded within Western society. As long as the West continues to dominate and exploit the majority of the world's darker people, the contradiction of liberal humanist rhetoric and exclusionary imperialist practice always risks being resolved into fascism. Any anti-fascist movement has to simultaneously confront the architectures of imperialism. So, Connor, as long as the United States, as long as the UK, as long as the EU looks to other countries for low-wage exploitable workers through immigration policy, will fascism be inevitable? Nothing is inevitable historically, um, but it will increase the probability of it emerging. And that's exactly what we're seeing um, in Europe. And Liz's book um, was very clear on that. And as we're seeing with um, the Trump administration um, and with disaster nationalism um, in various parts of the world um, that are linked to kind of racism that's been sloshing around for a long time. Um, so it's not inevitable. And of course, we can confront all of these things um, as a movement. The mass of the population does have the power to do it if we're organized and determined enough. Um, but um, there is a real danger at the moment that we are in a kind of pre phase of a new era of fascism in the West and that Donald Trump and Boris Johnson and uh, Orban and all the others are going to look like a kind of clownish dress rehearsal for uh, what's coming down the line, especially as the crises of, of ecology and economics um, and, and social care um, intensify. If we don't get our act together and start proposing and winning um, proper alternatives and shifting the political terrain and the economic terrain and the, the kind of power back to working class people, um, I, I think there's a real risk. And I don't want to say anything's inevitable, but there's a real risk that um, we will at some point in our lives um, wind up with another era of fascism. Uh, we skipped right over one of the five parts of the series, one that's on Algeria. I had about 40 questions written about that. We could have had five different conversations that would have each lasted a half an hour about this. So I just want to make sure that all of our listeners, please go check out Connor's writing at versobooks.com, The Imperial Boomerang. Our guest has been Connor Woodman. Connor, thanks so much for being on our show. Thanks so much. I really enjoyed it. All righty then, keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996, this is hell. And if you want to help us climb out of that debt, you can subscribe to tomorrow's Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell. Coming up during the moment of truth with Jeff Dorchin, Jeff wonders if we can pretend our way to justice. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live stream host Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. This week's question from hell is, what has Joe Biden been up to this whole time? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins a This Is Hell medical face mask. You can find that right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. And you can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we must have your answer by the end of show today when we will be announcing this week's winner. Alex, do you have any more listeners' answers to this week's question from hell? Uh, yeah, we got one more, and it's from Jeffy, and it's... Rectal osculation. <laughs> Jesus. Alex, we'll have the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell following Jeff. Again, email them to us or message them to us via Facebook or Twitter or whatever. And then we're announcing the winner in just a few minutes. 
on Patreon tomorrow. Alex, what is the interview that we're going to be playing tomorrow on Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell? Are we playing the next Aaron Dottie Roy interview? Yeah, so, why don't we do that? We uh, got a bunch of Aaron Dottie Roy interviews and they're all great. So uh, let's continue the series. Also on Patreon tomorrow, I'm, well, I wasn't really quite certain what I was going to be talking about. Uh, I know there was a poll in the small small town paper I got a gift subscription to, and it was asking how best to respond to the protests against the police murder of George Floyd. So, you know, that did not go well, but the responses were probably golden. And I've been learning a lot about policing on the show lately, so maybe I'll touch on that. But then right before the show, I thought of cancel culture and how the right is so upset about cancel culture so i'll tell you how culture here in the united states canceled this is hell since 1996 but you can only hear any of that in another one of our interviews by or with a booker prize winning author aaron Dottie roy by subscribing to completely listener supported this is hell on patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell you can also show your support for this is hell by going to this hell.com and clicking on support where you can see all the ways you can help out this is hell including all of our merch during the moment of truth with jeff dorch and jeff's going to be pretending our way to just wondering if we can pretend our way to justice i've been having a horrible time reading today we'll also read the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell and announce our favorite as the winner. Keep in mind, a lot of the questions I asked this week were written while I was high. This is hell I know you have. Hefe, on the line. One, two, you know what to do. Left. Ricky versus Fred. Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst that is the drink. You know that sitcom episode formula where two main characters, best friends, agree secretly to pretend to have a falling out with each other in order to trick a third character into behaving a certain way. But as the two are pretending, one blurts out a genuine resentment, which is retaliated against followed by another one from the first, and the play acting evolves into an exchange of things they can't stand about each other, recrimination upon recrimination, rising to a crescendo until the main characters are in an actual rather than deceptive fight. You know that formula? It's in every sitcom. I imagine in the Brady Bunch there were at least three episodes. There's probably a name for this kind of episode among sitcom writers. It might be a Latin name, as a lot of those assholes went to Harvard, or... The template might be known as a Ricky versus Fred. For those of you unschooled in classical comedy, the references to Ricky Ricardo and Fred Mertz, no relation to Chuck, the husbands of Lucy and Ethel, respectively. In life, though, it can go the opposite way. Two enemies, each trying to get along, say, for the sake of attention from a mutually valued third person, will pretend to be fair and level-headed, extending false congeniality upon congeniality toward each other until the mutual benevolences begin to cascade, the pretending bleeds into sincerity, and an actual bond emerges where once there was rancor. The transformation of an exchange of small favors for somewhat petty reasons into an actual noble friendship is a real process I can attest to, and I believe that what begins as an act 
a mimetic kindness, a pantomime of good intentions, a kabuki of full-hearted generosity can become habitual enough to engender actual human and humane trust between parties who had previously shared nothing but suspicion. And it's like for a long time we've been watching that process going on between white people and everyone else. White people from their hopping on the black-led abolition bandwagon prior to the U.S. Civil War up until today have in varying degrees made noises that people of color are not inferior despite how white people have treated them, just people who happen to have skin or names or behaviors that place them outside whatever the current definition of white is. It's like that with the political aristocracy and everyone else. It's like that with the different factions of law enforcement and everyone else. But, as with the economic aristocracy and everyone else, that dysfunctional relationship is going to take a lot more than the ebb and flow of magnanimous gestures to give rise to true mutual respect and benevolence. That's probably true of every unequal power relationship right now, which is why so many white people, at least the ones unwilling to be overtly obnoxiously, let alone lethally racist, are greeting Black Lives Matter uprisings so positively, from paying lip service all the way up to actually working to help in a positive way. They sense on some level that this might be their last chance to repair, or even begin repairing, their broken relationship with black people as righteously aggrieved victims of historical and current abuse by those who embody whiteness. White people have performed a cyclical ritual, offering over the ages small kindnesses, maybe ultimately trifling kindnesses, little by little gaining the trust of black people, but eventually black people want something like, say, real change that white people feel threatened by, and there the dance of benevolence ends. It's obviously a vicious circle of placation and disillusionment. I wonder, though, if maybe it's not a flat circle, but an upwardly spiraling one, destined to lead eventually to true mutual understanding. Maybe the answer lies in figuring out who is the third character in this analogy, the one the two main characters hope to win over by leveraging their mutual kindness. Let's reverse engineer this phenomenon onto a sitcom episode formula. Let's use... Laverne and Shirley, because I'm white and old, and the last sitcom with all black characters was What's Happening that I remember, and uh, I had a pretty weak grasp on that. Thinking analytically, I put black people at the apex of the triangle, or at the ostensible center of the comic drama. Black people are Shirley. One group of white people is Laverne, Shirley's best friend, and another group is Carmine, Shirley's boyfriend. Carmine is incrementalist liberals, and Laverne is revolutionary leftists. Laverne helps out doing the dishes, giving Carmine and Shirley a little time alone. Shirley, impressed with Laverne's graciousness, takes Laverne out bowling, which is really what Laverne was after. So to one-up her, Carmine helps out doing Shirley's laundry, so Shirley has time to go visit her mother. And this goes on until Shirley starts getting used to being catered to by Laverne and Carmine, but eventually they get sick of kowtowing to Shirley's whims. They start sharing gripey gossip about Shirley behind her back, telling each other she's unreasonable or aggravating. Oh, Shirley, she wants everything to revolve around blackness at the expense of global working class consciousness, complains Laverne. 
Oh, surely, says Carmine. She wants equality to the extent that I would actually have to give up some of my privilege. Eventually they come to bond over their resentment of Shirley, at least enough so they support each other on a certain level, and Shirley is left out in the cold, resented because of accepting little favors from each group of white people, when what she really needed all along was a kidney transplant, and Laverne and Carmine are both viable donors, but also want to keep all four kidneys to themselves, so Shirley dies of kidney failure. And then Carmine and Laverne each blames the other, and Shirley comes back in the form of a punishing wraith, haunting their nights and burning their cities. Or maybe the black people and the revolutionary left, and every group put upon, feared, and hated by white male supremacists, over-militarized, money-intoxicated, oligarchical-owning class, uh, each take turns being Shirley. And Laverne and Carmine are just two different arms of the same conniving establishment, playing three-card Monty, tempting us to play for worthless rewards that somehow failed to materialize and promises never intended to be kept. I'm not sure that's a great formula for a comedy, though. Maybe one of those grim comedies with funny violence and cannibalism where your parents turn out to be human-eating aliens. The problem with analogies is they're just analogies. History appears to repeat itself, but the present bears a resemblance to the past. It isn't the past itself. Nothing is destined. Nothing is formulaic. Anything can happen, even unhappy endings. This has been the moment of truth. Good day. Oh, Jeffy, Jeffy, Jeffy. What? What's hey, happening? What, What's happening? That's, what, that's as far as you can remember. That's as far as I, I you know, because you know, Fresh Prince of Bel Air came on, and then A Different World, and I just didn't like those. I just, I was too old by then to like punish myself by sitting still for half an hour <laughs> watching people pretend to have comedic timing and. You know, listening to jokes that were only that only resemble jokes. By the way, your last guest kind of said what said what I ended my thing with. He said that nothing is inevitable. Yeah, yeah, it's, sure. Nothing in history, inevitable. nothing is inevitable in history. Uh, death. Well, yeah, <laughs> individually, sure. individual death, but not the death of say a movement or a. Uh, I don't know. Now get back to I me guess, next year on that. Well, how you feeling? <laughs> a little bit better. <laughs> all right, Jeffy, I want to get Alex out of here as fast as possible. Oh, all righty. All right, stay beautiful. You too, bye. Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show podcast live streaming host Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. This week's question from hell is, what has Joe Biden been up to this whole time? What has Joe Biden been up to this whole time? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins a This Is Hell medical face mask, which you can find at thisishell.com when you click on support. Alex, do you have any more answers to this week's question? Nah, from hell? just rectal osculations, the last one. Thank God. My answer to this week's question from hell, what has Joe Biden been up to this whole time? Snorting Prevagen, then mainlining Prevagen. Just essentially just taking as much Prevagen, soaking in Prevagen. The answers I liked most this week were Joshua saying, according to our one and only Savior Q, he is eating babies, mostly dead ones. Jeff saying trying his best not to sound like Donald Trump or Joe Biden. Shane saying being alive, totally and completely alive, breathing and eating and 
pooping totally normally like a live human being. Boy, I wish I was like Joe Biden then. Rob saying massage therapy school, which was gross. Aaron saying sniffing the hair of multiple black women to see who he likes for his VP pick. Karen's ear hair farming was an early favorite. Aaron saying accumulating goodwill by not campaigning. Joshua saying that he's been training every cop in our country to shoot the legs. And Bradley saying that Joe's been staying healthy by running to the right of Trump on Venezuela. Any one of those really stick out to you, Alex? I liked all the ones about how normal and uh, healthy Joe Biden is. (laughs) All right, let's do with that. That's Shane saying being alive, totally and completely alive, breathing and eating and pooping totally. Totally normally like a live human being. Shane, you are the winner of this week's question from hell. You will be receiving a This Is Hell medical face mask in the mail. All you have to do is just Facebook message us your mailing address. Alex, who's on the show next week, Monday through Thursday, as far as we know, as of now? No one. <laughs> got absolutely no one. But can I interest you in a book called The Government of Beans? <laughs> I saw I'm, that. I'm really into The Government of Beans. <laughs> I did read The Milagro Beanfield War, so maybe I have already a step in the right direction on that. I want to thank, we want to thank this week's guest, sociologist Musa El Garbi, who wrote the article for The Baffler. Brutal Force, the full picture of police violence in America, shows the cops are out of control. Thanks to law scholar Aya Gruber, author of The Feminist War on Crime. Thanks to historian Adam Goodman, author of The Deportation Machine, America's Long History of Expelling Immigrants. And finally, thanks to today's guest, Connor Woodman, who posted the five-part series at Verso Books website, The Imperial Boomerang. You can find that story again at versobooks.com. This week's Hangover Cure was Skip the champagne skip the champagne we'll talk to you tomorrow on patreon when i will share with you exactly why i had trouble with doing some reads today but you can only hear that if you subscribe on patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell there's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this is hell this week that's by sitting down in the lotus position turning your palms towards the sky focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead and saying these simple words Everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride.